And so we'll be looking today at the last day of Advent uh, at Isaiah chapter 40. Next week we'll return to the book of Acts because uh, we're in a series on Acts. So uh, I'm going to read the first five verses of Isaiah 40. I'm then going to thumb over to Matthew 1 and read a passage there. So follow along with me. This is the word of the Lord. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries, in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Turn to Matthew 1. Let's look at verse 18, read to verse 25. It says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Join me in a brief word of prayer. Well, Lord, we now turn to you as we consider these two passages from your holy, authoritative, infallible word. God, give us the grace to receive from you today, from your word. Lord, we need you today. We confess our neediness. As Aaron alluded to, Lord, it is a busy season, and we just want to slow down. We just want to slow down long enough to behold your glory together. Give us eyes and ears and even just the physical ability to hear you this morning, but especially give us the spiritual ability to hear your word. Spirit, we need you. We confess our need for you. I confess my need for you. Be with us, we pray, as we look now in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for being seated. I'm going to move this. I just realized because I will trip on it. And then I'm going to move this so you guys can see over here. So there we are. Good? All right. Well, uh, yeah, tomorrow is Christmas Day, uh, the, the biggest day of the year. I don't know if your house is like my house, but uh, it is truly just a day that we, it's a big day for us. And uh, my, Michelle and I, are, we are my wife Michelle uh, and I, we are the only, si we have only, only siblings with children, so our family typically flies in or comes in, and so my family is actually on the way today, and so we have a nice big celebration. We do the usual Christmas morning. We head out to the, uh, 
living room, and uh, we all open up gifts, and uh, uh, I greatly look forward to, to this time of year, as I'm sure you, you're, you do as well. But last year, uh, we had a bit of a, a different Christmas. Uh, we jokingly refer to it in my house as the Christmas that I passed away. Um, a couple of days before the big day, I began to have symptoms. Uh, it turned out it was another bout with COVID. And so by Christmas Day, which was the, the peak day of the symptoms, was the worst day. I was totally debilitated. Uh, I tried to come out of my room for a minute, but uh, all I could do was go back in bed and just embrace my condition. Now, you know how it is when you're sick. You don't care about anything. Uh, but of course, uh, Michelle and the kids, it was a disappointment for them. It certainly wasn't the Christmas that any of us hoped for. And uh, so it, we tend to have Christmases like that in some way. Something kind of goes wrong or a holiday that kind of goes wrong. Uh, and we experience disappointment. And so we often find ourselves praying uh, when Christmas comes. Lord, please don't let anyone get sick uh, this Christmas. And I guess that's maybe because we sort of idealize Christmas, don't we? We idealize holidays. And when you idealize something, it, it leads to disappointment. That's the case if you idealize anything. If you idealize a relationship, it's probably going to lead to disappointment. If you idealize a career or a job, it's probably going to lead to disappointment. If you idealize children and being a good parent, it's probably going to lead to disappointment. When we glamorize things, we get let down when we discover that things are not as we expected them to be. Well, I imagine that that is how Isaiah's hearers felt when he gave these prophecies to these people. As we've been seeing, Isaiah prophesied at a very dark time in Jewish history. God gave him the task no one wanted. He, he gave him the task of prophesying God's judgment on God's people for their sin. And so for 39 chapters, the first book of Isaiah, Isaiah is prophesying a message given within the context of Assyrian invasion. In chapter 40, 40 through 55, book 2, the setting there is likely the Babylonian exile, long after Isaiah lived, by the way, in the year 586. And so he's prophesying judgment. And if you ever read the book of Isaiah in your devotional times, you probably think that to yourself, this is, this is a dark book. This is a book full of judgment. But if you read closely, it is also a book that is strewn through with a thread of hope. And as we've been seeing during Advent, God continues to tell his people, though dark times are upon you, and though dark times will continue, I, God, will not forget you. I, God says, I will deliver you. But I will do it in a way that no one imagined through a deliverer that no one expected. And so in chapter 40, there's, there's one more aspect of the coming of the deliverer, Jesus, at Christmas that we want to consider today before we go back to Acts. We've looked at the problem of Christmas so far. We looked at the wonder of Christmas. We looked at the future of Christmas. And today we're going to look at, finally, the comfort of Christmas. Friends, Christmas may very well be a, commercial, a commercialized holiday, especially in the West. But we, we, we look forward to it. But we who have been redeemed by grace know 
that long before any man-made tradition began to shape the holiday as we know it, Christmas was not a holiday. Christmas was a rescue mission of a weary world and a darkness of their own doing. Isaiah announces that in the person of Jesus Christ, God will finally and forever comfort, comfort his people. But friends, to experience this peace, this joy, this comfort that he promised, something must happen in each of us. And that's what I want to talk about today. I have two points for you if you're a note taker. The first is the promise of God's comfort. We'll look at that in Isaiah 40. And the second is the key to God's comfort. And we'll pop over to Matthew and consider Joseph's experience and this account of the birth of Jesus. So first, number one, the promise of God's comfort, the promise. Now, we all can recall that famous passage that Melita read for us in Luke chapter 2. It's, it's uh, been captured in movies and in little you know, nativity scenes and so on. But the angelic host appears to the shepherds who are in the fields of Bethlehem, keeping watch over their flock by night. And of course, they're terrified by this, which any of us would be. But the angels assured them, do not fear. Do not fear. Because today is born to you, today, a Savior, a Savior. And therefore, peace would become the reality, as Aaron showed us, for those with whom God is pleased. Well, that angelic announcement on Christmas Day is the fulfillment of Isaiah's announcement in chapter 40. Here, the Lord wants Isaiah to stop announcing judgment on his people, but with a double imperative, comfort in verse 1, and the exhortation in verse 2 to speak tenderly. God is consoling his people who have long endured his discipline. More specifically, this double comfort of the passage is tied to verse 2, the ending of God's judgment over many war-torn years and, and the merciful forgiveness of his sins against, against them. And this would be greatly comforting, by the way, for a person, a Jewish person who was in exile. In other words, no matter how difficult their circumstances were, they could put the full weight of their confidence on God's promise that this exile will not last forever. One day, God promised, one, that there will be peace, two, from pardoned sin and freedom from their captivity. And if you're a Christian here today, you have that same promise. You can put the full weight of your confidence on that promise that God has given to his people in Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 1. But specifically, when would this happen? Well, verse 3 tells us, Isaiah's, Isaiah gives us a clue. Listen to what he says in verse 3. He says, a voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Now, if you're not familiar with Middle Eastern topography, uh, Babylon, which is where the exile took place, is something like 600 miles east-northeast from Israel as the crow flies, and it's separated by a vast desert, the Arabian desert. So verse 3 was fulfilled in part when King Cyrus, later of Persia, issued a decree that the Jews could return to Israel. Now, if you study the history, you know that those Jews, though, 
did not return and could not return through the desert. There was a road that went north and south back down to Israel, not directly through the desert. And so there must be a future fulfillment of verse 3 in some way. And in verse 4, at verse 4, excuse me, in all four Gospels, they tell us that this was actually fulfilled in someone else. You may know the voice in the wilderness is John the Baptist. In fact, all four Gospels quote Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 3 in reference to John. You remember the story in Luke 1 when Zechariah the priest grabbed his infant son and he could finally speak. He didn't believe the angel. He could finally speak. He prophesied. He probably held him in his arms and looked at him and said, You child, you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways. What's the point? The point is, Isaiah 40 is not merely about God's people's return from exile. This is about Yahweh, God. Notice, God coming to his people in their desert, in their barrenness. Yahweh, God himself, will come to his people's aid, and the gospel see this deliverance as fulfilled in Jesus. Isaiah says that his coming will be so momentous and so earth-shattering that he compares it to topographical transformation in verse 4. Valleys will be raised. Mountains will be leveled. Obstacles will be removed. In other words, what's he saying? Nothing will hinder this deliverer's saving work. Nothing will stop this deliverer's glory from shining. The whole world, all people will see it. And as we saw a few weeks ago, God in his zeal will do this. Now, friends, Isaiah, however, seems to infer that not everyone will benefit from it. And if you are a person who typically celebrates Christmas, you don't have to be a Christian to celebrate Christmas. In fact, a lot of people that are not Christians celebrate Christmas, and to them, Christmas is little more than an extra day out of work to buy and to give and to drink. And friends, if this is all Christmas is, if this is all Christmas is to you, then I want to humbly suggest that you may not have received the grace that he has come to give. You see, in order to benefit from this deliverer's coming, in order to receive the double comfort of Isaiah 40, the human heart must undergo a topographical transformation of its own. In the words of the famous Christian hymn that we'll sing at the end of our time together, to get the joy, your heart must prepare him room. That's why I read Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 to 25. Joseph, Jesus' adoptive father, is an illustration of someone who uniquely had to prepare room in his heart for this Savior. And there's a lot of examples that we could have focused on this year. But I decided to choose him because Joseph is a guy that does not get much press. And so I thought I'd talk about him. So let's learn from Joseph's example for just a minute and see how we can receive the double comfort of Isaiah 40, verse 1. So number two is the key to God's comfort. Matthew chapter 1. Very quickly and without warning, the birth of Jesus is announced and Joseph had to quickly learn what selflessness 
was. Any proud or self-serving hill in this man's heart had to be made low. Now, you've heard that term before, that's not a hill I'm going to die on, or that is a hill I'm going to die on. That's an old military term. It, it, it means I'm going to defend this hill no matter what it costs me personally, or I'm not going to defend this hill, and I'm just going to get down because this is not worth it. We use that term quite often. Well, we see in Joseph at least three ways in Matthew 1, 18 to 25, that he had to die on a hill. Three hills in his life that he had to die on. Let me go over these with you briefly. The hill of his reputation, the hill of his self-reliance, and the hill of his rights. So let's look at each of these quickly. The hill of his reputation is the first. In chapter 1, of course, Matthew lists this genealogy of Jesus in the first 17 verses, and then right into verse 18, he just jumps into the birth story of Jesus and introduces Mary and Joseph without much background information, although he's very careful, if you notice, to not call Joseph Jesus's father, although by the end of the passage, he will certainly become his adoptive father. We aren't told much about this couple except for the fact that they are betrothed. Now, when we hear that term, betrothed, we tend to think of engagement. But in ancient Judea or Israel, betrothal is so much more than what it is today. A betrothal back then was a binding contract, all right? Today, if you get engaged, you can break off the engagement. Back then, when you were engaged, betrothal was a binding contract. It was the same as legal marriage, which is why uh, the, the narrator tells us in verse 19 that Joseph was Mary's husband. And so during the betrothal period, which usually lasted about a year, the woman, oftentimes she was not yet 15 years old, would live with her parents, and when the betrothal was complete, she would then leave her father's home, she'd enter into a public ceremony with the man, and she would go live with her husband. So here, Joseph and Mary have not yet consummated their marriage, whether by ceremony or by intercourse, and yet Joseph finds out the unthinkable. Mary is pregnant. Now he tells us, Matthew tells us, we know very quickly this is an act of the Holy Spirit. Joseph doesn't know this yet. Quite literally, this baby has come by an act of new creation. I want you to think creative. This is creation. This is not sexual. Think Genesis 1-2, the Holy Spirit's hovering over the face of the deep, and he's the agent of creation. This is an act of creation here. Of course, Joseph doesn't know this. They're not living together just yet. In fact, Mary finds out she's pregnant, and she runs off into the hills to go live with her cousin Elizabeth, John's mother, John the Baptist. Well, evidently, some time goes by, and Joseph discovers, I don't know what, how, maybe he saw the bump, Maybe his buddy called him up and said, hey, Joseph, Mary has been gaining weight, and I don't think it's that kind of weight. I, I see something there. I don't know how he found out. We do know that Joseph finds out. Joseph finds out. And Joseph can only conclude one thing. Mary has betrayed the marriage. Mary has betrayed Joseph. <laughs> In those days, there's only one day to get pregnant, one way you can get pregnant. You can't get pregnant any other way. There's no artificial anything in those days. There's one day to get pregnant. One way, excuse me. Obviously, Mary, yeah, it's one day as well. That's true. Obviously, Mary has committed adultery. 
And for someone under the Mosaic law, if you look at Deuteronomy 22, the punishment for adultery is capital punishment. Death. Of course, by those days, the Israel was a client kingdom under Rome, and they banished the capital, capital punishment. It was illegal in those times. But at the very least, Joseph was required to divorce her, and it was publicly acceptable to shame her, and it was common. But Matthew tells us something different about this man. Joseph was a just man. Joseph was a righteous man. Yes, he could have shamed her, but he won't do this. Joseph loves her. He only wants good for her. And so in an act of extreme humility, Joseph quietly finds the two witnesses required for divorce, and he makes an appointment, as it were, to go to the courthouse and file the divorce papers. Now, I want you to imagine this with me. Imagine this this whole situation. We don't think about Joseph a whole lot. For the rest of this man's life, Joseph would be known as the guy who was merciful to an adulterous woman. This would be especially scandalous after he decides to continue with this marriage anyway. And for the rest of his life, Joseph will walk the streets, and he will walk the streets to the stairs of the public and to the talk of taverns as the man with an unfaithful wife. It was culturally mandatory. Please understand this. Culturally mandatory to move on with his life. He could have easily gone through life as a respectable carpenter. But instead, he chose to make room for his adopted son, who would become his savior. And in so doing, he exchanged his honor for humiliation. Now, maybe someone in here says, well, that good for him. Good for him. But you don't know the family I have. You don't know the job I have. I I could not do what Joseph has done. But friends, here's the reality. When Jesus comes into your life, his presence will be accompanied by the scorn and the disdain of the world. Later, Jesus will say that to anyone who wants to follow him, they must be willing to abandon even the dearest relationships. Luke 14. This this includes the favorable opinions of family, of friends, of co-workers, the very people who give meaning to our lives. Friends, are you willing to die on that hill? Are you willing to die on the hill of your reputation in order to follow Jesus? Joseph believed that the promise of God's comfort in the Savior was worth it. So he died on the hill of reputation. The second hill he died on was the hill of self-reliance. Matthew 1.20 tells us that as Joseph considered these things, in other words, as he reasoned within himself about the best way to put Mary away quietly, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. Joseph is a guy, by the way, who would become well familiar with dreams, angelic appearances in dreams. He's one of the few people in Scripture to actually receive revelation from God in dreams. And if you read the Bible storyline, at only a few points, pivotal points 
in the history of redemption does God reveal himself to people in this way, in dreams. Joseph is one of them. Now, clearly Joseph is a good dude. And, and, and as, as, even though as far as he's concerned, Mary has been unfaithful to him, we see in Joseph a man conflicted, trying to figure out the best way to quietly end this thing in a way that honors both God and Mary. But friends, this is no ordinary situation. This baby is of divine and not natural generation. In him and through him, Yahweh will come to his barren people and rescue them and comfort them. And so, friends, listen, everyone involved in the birth narrative of Jesus, everyone involved in this story, everyone involved in his life is secondary. If you like, they're the direct objects. God is the subject. God is doing all the heavy lifting. As Jonah once said, salvation is of the Lord. So case in point, God won't let Joseph figure things out on his own. He won't let him. God has long promised that David will have a man on the throne, so God will ensure that Jesus is born to a direct descendant of David, even though, biologically speaking, Joseph was uninvolved. So Joseph has his courthouse appointment set, and he goes to bed. And while he's asleep, he's not dreaming of sugar plums, God's messenger appears to him and says, Son of David, do not fear. Take Mary. This baby is from God. Joseph is a righteous man, and he thinks he knows what's best. But friends, God has other plans. God will save Joseph and all of his chosen people completely apart from his efforts. And friends, if you're one of them, it's the same for you. God grants salvation, rescue from sin, the greatest enemy, our greatest enemy, all on his own. Yes, he uses means from Mary and Joseph to the betrayal of Judas to the death sentence of Pilate, each of these had a hand in the life and death of Jesus. But listen, Jesus is the one who accomplishes salvation. He is the one who lived the sinless life for Joseph. He is the one who died the atoning death in Joseph's place. He received from the Lord's hands double for all of Joseph's sins. And friends, he did all of this so that Joseph and all of us could not say, I did this. I did this on my own. And so when Joseph awoke, all the facts were in place. He knew now that God was doing something new with this child. Somehow, in a mystery beyond human understanding, the eternal son became a new creation so that Joseph and all who trust in him would become a new creation. 
So Joseph died on the hill of self-reliance, of self-determination. He embraced his inability to figure out life on his own and surrendered to God's will no matter the cost. I learned a little bit of that last Christmas when I was in bed. And oddly enough, there's an unusual freedom that happens when you can't do anything, whether it's in your sick bed or whatever situation God has you in right now. It could be joblessness. some helplessness of some form. Whatever your situation is, friends, embrace that. There's something freeing about being unable to do anything so that you can't say, I did this on my own. But you know, eventually I healed, and to be honest, our temptation is always to go back to that hill, isn't it? Our temptation is always to go back to that hill of self-reliance. So we, so we break our backs to make an extra dollar and to spank our kids into submission and to yell our spouse into submission and to withhold good from our neighbor to get the upper hand. We try everything in our power, don't we, to fix what's broken, to ensure a favorable outcome. And guess what? We're anxious, aren't we? We're anxious, we're stressed out, we're afraid. And we have forgotten that only through this incarnate Son can we be saved from all the disordered brokenness of our own doing, dear one? Will we die on the hill of self-reliance like Joseph did? Finally, there's the hill of Joseph's rights. I won't spend long here. But to receive comfort, Joseph had to surrender his rights on a number of levels. Let's just look at a few of these quickly. First, Joseph had to give up naming rights. Look at verse 21. The angel said, you are going to call his name Jesus. Now, understand, in ancient Palestine, you as a dad, you named your kid. And you probably named it something, that, a name that was already in your family tree somewhere. You named your child in the way that you saw fit. Here, the angel denies Joseph even the basic right to name this son he is taking responsibility for. Why? Well, because jo jo Joseph is not Jesus' father. This baby has no earthly origin. Joseph can never claim that Jesus comes from him. But when Joseph obeys, listen, this is, this is the cool thing about grace. When Joseph obeys the angelic command to name him Jesus, what happens? Joseph becomes the adoptive father of Jesus, thereby securing Jesus in the Davidic line. But he had to give up his naming rights. Secondly, he gave up his conjugal rights. Look at verses 24 and 25. When Joseph woke from sleep, he obeyed. He took Mary as his wife. They had the public ceremony. But he knew her not until she gave birth to a son. That's Matthew's way of saying they did not have sex until she gave birth to a son. Now, why tell us this? Why do any of us need to know that? I don't need to know that. Do you need to know that? Why tell us that? Why did Joseph wait? Well, I believe that Joseph waited in an act of faith on his part. I, I think he was so convinced that this child growing in the womb 
of his wife was the son of God that he said to himself in his heart, I will have no part in this. I will stand aside completely until this baby comes into the world. I won't have anyone, even my closest confidants, that I would tell something like this. I won't have anyone know or believe that I had any part in this. So in an act of faith, he deprived himself of his right to intimacy with his wife so that when the baby was born, he could take comfort in knowing that God was solely responsible. Lastly, he gave up his right to settle down. If you look at the next chapter, Matthew 2, you'll read that Joseph moved again and again, first to Bethlehem to pay taxes and have the baby. Then he went to Egypt to avoid Herod's violent purge of all newborns under age 2. Then he went to Nazareth so that he could avoid Judea, Herod's son, and fulfill Old Testament scripture. But the point is, Joseph denied himself. Joseph denied himself his rights in order to welcome the Savior into his life. You see, friends, to gain the comfort that these passages promise, the comfort that comes from inviting the Savior into your life, there is a cost. There is a cost. You've got to come down low before you can be lifted up. Joseph exemplifies this for us. Here's a guy with quiet faith, and I mean literally quiet. You never hear Joseph utter a word in the narrative in any of the four Gospels. But like John the Baptist, he's committed to decreasing so that this son, who's only his adopted, adopted son, can increase. But if you think about this for a little bit, when we look at Joseph, we actually just look at a shadow, don't we? Joseph, friends, embodies the very Savior that he stepped aside for, the very Savior that he went low for. In his book, The Dawn of Redeeming Grace, Sinclair Ferguson says this of Joseph. He says, Joseph's experience illustrates A broader principle, welcoming Christ into your life means that you will share in what happened to Jesus. At first sight, in the first two chapters of Matthew, it looks as though where Joseph goes, Jesus goes. But it's really the other way around, isn't it? Where Jesus goes, Joseph goes. If Joseph had to become a refugee in Egypt, so does Jesus, so does Joseph. If Jesus had to be brought up in Nazareth, To Nazareth, Joseph must go. So what we see in Joseph's life is a striking illustration of a permanent principle. The Christ we receive by faith is also the Christ who shapes our life of faith. And those who come to him discover that life takes on a Jesus shape. Sean read this earlier, Philippians Philippians chapter 2. Jesus humbled himself more than any other man in history. He, listen, listen. He went lower than you and I will ever fathom to go. He knows the depths and the trenches more than you know the depths 
and the trenches, or I know the depths and the trenches. He went lower than we'll ever have to go, friends. And this is precisely how he reveals God's glory, as Isaiah 40, verse 5 says. To become the Savior described by this angel, he had to surrender his right to 24-7 angelic worship, the indescribable glory of heaven. Have you or I ever had to do that? To become the Savior, he had to exchange his honor for humiliation in a way Joseph never had to. To become the Savior, he had to surrender his right to self-determination, his reputation, his love and approval of society in a way Joseph never had to. And friends, in a way Joseph never had to, and in a way you and I will never have to, Jesus died on a hill, which is called Calvary. And he did that so your real enemy and my real enemy, sin, could be defeated forever. The war that's going on in your heart is a war of sin, my friend. And he came so that you would not have to endure it anymore. He died so that you could be saved. He died so that you could be delivered from your self-determination, from your self-rule. He did that for you. Friends, listen, Alistair Begg says, you will never run to God unless you are convinced that he is favorable toward you. You're not going to come to an angry God. You and I will only come to a a God whose arms are open wide, a God who is favorable toward us. The first Christmas is the dawn of God's favor towards sinners like you and me, friends. And when we see this, we receive comfort and peace. This past week, I had some time alone with uh, my son Malachi, my youngest son. The two older ones went and visited some friends. And we sat down one night with just the Christmas tree lights lit. And we put on the famous... We watch it every single year. You probably do too. We watch it multiple times. A Charlie Brown Christmas. It's funny when you watch something over and over again, you start seeing things you didn't see before. And so we're watching this and, you know, Charlie's going through the whole film. It's like 25 minutes long. He's going through the whole film just utterly depressed because he doesn't know the meaning of Christmas. And so the whole movie, you know, Linus or Lucy are trying to convince him what the meaning of Christmas is, and, you know, Lucy tries the psychological approach, and Linus kind of, you know, he basically insults him a couple of times, and that doesn't work. Finally, at the end, you know, of course, you know the part where Charlie's just so frustrated, the kids are laughing at him. Doesn't anyone know, tell me what Christmas is all about? And then Linus stands up, and he says, I can tell you what Christmas is all about, and he quotes from Luke chapter 2, and Charlie Brown leaves, and he's all lighthearted. But I saw something this time when I watched it. And I noticed that the the details of the angelic announcement of Christ's birth from Luke chapter 2, verses 8 to 14, it is good news of great joy, but not by itself. If you only have Luke 2, 8 to 14, the angelic announcement is nothing more than strange. The angelic announcement was given within the context 
of a great story. Charlie Brown became depressed very quickly. He didn't get the full story. Now, Linus says something like the King James Version, peace, goodwill toward men. We know that translation, but that's not the correct translation. A more accurate translation of the Greek would be something like peace to those on whom his favor rests, like Aaron read to us. So, friends, how do you get God's favor? Answer, you can't do anything. I can't do anything. God must come for us. And he has come in the person of his son Jesus. And his birth was vital. But listen, that cradle cannot be independent of that cross. He had to atone for the sins of God's people. That cradle is nothing more than the starting line. There is a finish line. And at that finish line, Jesus destroyed the record of debt that stood against us so that God could become favorable to us. To us. So how can we gain God's favor? Here it is. Your heart has to go low. You've got to be made low. Only then can you truly receive Only then can you truly be lighthearted. Friends, the comfort of Christmas is that God's richest grace is waiting for us in the lowest place. And yet perhaps, maybe some of us in this room have never received him. Even today, you're going to celebrate Christmas like the rest of the world does because you've not placed your faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. Though you may think you're good, because one day when you were a kid, you were baptized and you got the card. But your life does not reflect a Jesus shape. I'm finishing up, so don't worry. In Christianity, faith is not merely about a resolution, a decision. Now hear me. It's not merely about a resolve to say, I have decided to follow Jesus. It is that, but it is so much more. Friends, when this Savior enters into your life, he changes you. You don't change yourself. He comes in and totally transforms you from the inside out. Faith, faith in Jesus is less like a resolution and more like a revolution. It's God coming in and in a merciful, sovereign coup of your heart takes over your life and displaces me and you from the throne that we have put ourselves in. And Jesus sits there. And he becomes our Lord. To make room in your heart means surrender. And Joseph and Mary and everyone else counted him to be worth it. Friends, Jesus has come in the preaching of his word today to announce a promise of his comfort. But first, 
he must begin with a revolution in your heart. He will show you. He will show you your sin. You will have to confess the darkness of your heart. You will have to go low. You will have to embrace your condition. There are hills that you must die on. But friends, listen. The Lord Jesus Christ, the Savior, became God with us so that he could become the lamb who was slain for us so that you and I would never be alone. He already died on a hill for that stuff that you're afraid to confess. So receive his grace. Believe in his name. Let your life take on a Jesus shape. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to her. Her warfare is ended. Her iniquity is pardoned. She has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. If you're a Christian today, that's true of you in Christ.